The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week I'm very, very pleased to be joined by the critic and writer Laura Cumming, whose new book is Thunderclap, a memoir of art and life and sudden death. And it's a book that manages to be simultaneously about art and Dutch art in particular, and Laura's own father, Jimmy. Laura, welcome. Can you start by telling me how how these elements of the book come together? <laughs> well, that's a hard question. Um, well, you know, when you start to write a book, very often you have a shape to it. And um, the last book was a palindrome in, in my head. And this one's a kind of Dutch plat. So if you think of sort of blonde hair and a plat, there are three themes. And one is sight and the gift of sight and the f- unbelievable, amazing fact of the visible world all around us. And the second is the way that the visible world all around us is reproduced in millions, literally millions of Dutch paintings from the Golden Age. You know, everything from the fishing smack to the herring on the plate to the burger with the ruff and so on. A uh, girl reading a letter, Vermeer, Hals, Rembrandt and so on. And the third plat, I suppose, in it is the person who links these two things together for me, who is my father, beautifully described by you as Jimmy Cumming, because he was always known as Jimmy Cumming. And um, he was a painter. The only trip I ever took abroad with him in my um, growing up, well, in our growing up years together before he died, was to the Netherlands. And we both had this kind of passion for Dutch painting. So he is teaching me to see. I am seeing uh, in my early years almost entirely through postcards or playing cards, the memory game. Lots of your readers may remember those memory games where you turn over pairs of cards and every game like that would, you know, thrill me. There would be some sort of new kind of imagery in that. And also in the essential, I suppose, painting in this book, which is the first one I ever saw that I actually thought was a painting. It wasn't, of course, a painting. Um, This is something I think everybody has this experience. Primary school classroom, I'm four and a half years old, and on the wall is um, what we can all picture in our minds, a Dutch winter landscape with little figures skating off into the freezing distance and, and, you know, beautiful. And it was a large reproduction, and I thought it was the actual painting. And my first conversation in which I learned the distinction between reproductions of paintings Uh, And the real thing was by telling my father, you know, I'd seen this amazing scene of all these figures skittering around on the ice and little holes and people partying and what a wonderful painting it was. But he was obviously old and he said it was a Dutch winter landscape. And I thought, what's it doing here if it's Dutch? And the confusion in a child's mind about information about paintings compared to the actual striking sight of them is very great and the book is called Thunderclap because it's partly about the thunderclap of seeing paintings for the first time. Now these paintings you start and I'm really interested in the painting you choose to begin with is I think it's called A View of Delft though Delft or it's now called A View of Delft by Carol Fabricius who's one of the kind of key figures maybe the key figure in the book and you light on that painting because 
it sort of draws the viewer in, makes the viewer part of the painting, doesn't it? I mean, yes. And I just I will read the line about that because it's really what I want to say that there is this painting which is in the National Gallery. It's very tiny. And it, it, it has the atmosphere to me of something like a waking dream or a memory. And that it's, it shows a man sitting at the crossroads, um, the corner of two streets, and um, thinking and waiting. And he always looked to me when I first saw it in my 20s as, as if he was nursing a cigarette stub. And there are two musical instruments next to him on the table, and they seem to be reaching forward towards you. And my what I've written is, for you are here too somehow, hovering on exact eye level with the man and his table. The painting, so small and mysterious, is peculiarly alive to the nearness of your presence. It puts you on the spot on this quiet day when the leaves of the young elms are beginning to turn at this Dutch scene and you see Delft on one side of the painting and it's very bright and sunny and he's in the he's in the wrong side of the street in the shadows and so on. And, and I think that I never really understood how it was that this painter managed to make you feel as though you were effectively the fourth corner of his table. And one of the musical instruments in the painting, the viola, swells right out towards you. And if you leaned forward, you could just pluck the strings. And if he, with his, he's got his head in his hand, and if he just relaxed his arm and put his hand down across the table, he would appear to touch your fingers and so it's a very strange painting very very early 1654 one of very few paintings by this genius I think genius uh, maybe 10 11 possibly 12 paintings by him in a career between the ages of 18 and 32 um, hardly any paintings and as I said earlier you know the artists of this era are painting hundreds and in some cases thousands and thousands of paintings and he leaves almost none. And the painting, this particular painting, which I saw when I first arrived in London at the age of 22, I thought, well, I'm going to see loads more of these paintings by this great, great painter. And I never did. And years would pass and I would go, you know, to museums across the world thinking, you know, where among the Dutch winter landscapes and the plates of glistening red currants and the fantastic Vermeers and so on and, and, and the burghers, where am I going to see the other paintings by Fabricius? And I never did. And the, the thunderclap, one of the thunderclaps in this book is the moment at which, in some uh, listeners may remember, 1999, they brought together sort of one and only opportunity, all the self-portraits of Rembrandt at the National Gallery, and probably the greatest number of great paintings in history in one building all at once, you know, and people were all struck by it. And in the final, I think, you know, the penultimate gallery, we're gathered together a group of sort of knockoffs, you know, the pupils and their efforts. And, um, and I've written in the book quite a lot about this team of, um, you know, apostles who I kind of really resent, who are like a kind of backing group, um, Bowls, flink and do, bowls, flink and do, and they always turning up. You know, it's a very comical names. Kind of, yeah, the names are ridiculous. Yeah. And they don't really try any harder. They just try to look like Rembrandt. And it's a difficulty for, particularly for bowls and flink, because they're red haired, so it doesn't quite come off. And in the gallery was this astounding painting which is on the cover of the book Thunderclap, but it's also throughout, it's kind of the spirit of the book. And it's a self-portrait by Carol Fabricius. And he's very, very young. 
and it's very, very luminous and bright and it's filled with colour and it has all these marks, pink and green around the mouth and so on, and this sort of whiteness behind him. And it was staggering to see this thing and lots of people, you know, stopped in front of it, jaws hanging. And it felt as if all of that glowing tawny brown that you get in Rembrandt paintings, um, as if he just opened the shutters and the light was pouring in. And here was this guy to continue my theme of backing groups. He looked, to me, he had a sort of Mark Bolan haircut, you know, and he looked like a romantic poet, maybe, or a, a musician, philosopher. And he certainly didn't look like he was in the 17th century. And under his eye, his right eye, is this sort of gathering of snowy white brushwork. And it looked like snow. And I found out that he'd painted this painting in the middle of a phase of the Little Ice Age, which sort of took hold of the Netherlands and all of the northern European countries. And it was so, temperatures dropping so much that, you know, the Baltic Sea froze over and skating along canals, which is something we associate so much with the Dutch, you know, became a kind of life for them. So they transported their goods all the way through the Netherlands along these frozen canals. And he, this painter, Fabricius, of whom so little was known, he was painting this painting at a time when there is really snow everywhere. And I felt that the snow under his eye was lying like snow in a bough uh, of a tree. And I wondered, you know, how did he come to paint this really melancholy, solitary figure? And all of the paintings, all of the paintings by Fabricius are, whether they are animals or birds, the goldfinch, uh, or, or human beings. They're always these very lonely, solitary figures with their backs to a wall. Very strange. Well, as you say, Fabricius's own work, you know, there's so little of it and there's a sort of mystery as to why there is so little. But what do we know of him? Because as you described that portrait, I think he's about 21 and he's already suffered more than most of us suffer in a lifetime, hasn't he? Even this scant knowledge we have of his life. Yes, and um, the records of the life of Fabricius are in the beautifully titled Waterland Archive in Middenbeemster, um, which is a sort of poldered area just to the north of Amsterdam, newly poldered at the time that he went to live there, so rescued from the sea. And I don't even know what he can have seen growing up um, or how he came to be such a, a great painter, except that I think I've managed to establish in the book that he studies with Rembrandt far sooner than we can probably imagine. Um, he's probably a boy pupil there, I think. And he marries, very young, the girl next door. In this little village, there's a new church, and his father is the sexton of the new church and the teacher at the, the school, and the vicar dies. And just in the manner of sort of, I think it's a bit sort of Jane Austen, a little bit, you know, before the time, um, a new vicar arrives, bringing with him his sister, who's going to keep the house. You can imagine the, the, the tea parties. And um, he meets the sister and they do or don't I don't really know fall in love because certainly a child is born very soon after and they marry and the baby dies and if you go to the church of Middenbeemster which is still um, it looks almost exactly as it did then so it's just going to have a grid of roads way out in this you know level landscape still frozen in winter and so on you can see the records there of the the birth and, and the death of this first child Two more children are born and they both die as well. And um, I think pretty clearly the mother dies in childbirth um, with, the, with the third child. So 
by the time he paints this wonderful self-portrait, which is hanging in the Boyman's Museum in Rotterdam, he has lost his entire family. So he's married at 18 and he's widowed and all three of his children are dead by the time he paints this picture. And my sense in this book is that the reason there are no paintings is because I think he goes into an absolutely paralysing depression. Um, nothing is painted for years and years. And the analogy I've drawn in the book is with Rembrandt too, because Rembrandt's um, wife, his only wife, Saskia, dies uh, very soon after the birth of their only surviving child, Titus, who also dies very young, in fact. And Rembrandt stopped painting in oils for several years after that. And I, I've described it in the book as a, as a pictorial silence and withdrawal. So that's one of the reasons I think he doesn't paint. And Fabricius's relationship to Rembrandt, you say you think he was apprenticed to him much younger than previous historians have thought. How much does he learn from Rembrandt and how much does he sort of depart? Because as you describe it, he's, he's a really fugitive and interesting figure whose style changes quite dramatically, even among the, the small number of pictures we know, and who seems to be doing something really quite different. Yes, he really does. And you put that so well, because uh, even in this very short career with so few paintings, you can absolutely see what I think of as, the, as a sort of hinge moment. It's a particularly odd painting called Hagar and the Angel. And he's probably about 22 when he's painting it. And one side of the painting, which is the angel side, is absolutely a Rembrandt. So there's a kind of, you know, again, the tawny gold and the, and the figure. And you can actually see props in the corners of the painting that are props that you see in paintings by, well, all think and do, and certainly Rembrandt. And, but on the other side of the painting, Hagar, the figure of Hagar, is a, I, I hesitate to say hyperreal because it's much greater than that, but it is a living woman living in this world and, I would say certainly a portrait. And I would never be able to uh, persuade anyone that this painting works because, you know, it's absolutely schizophrenic. But it's he's about 22 and you never see him paint like Rembrandt again. So that picture is just sort of almost as if the Rembrandt side of him is exiting from the picture at that point. And does the new ground he breaks get taken on and absorbed and... You know, developed by other artists because you what, one of the themes of the book is, and I'm really caricaturing this, but nobody liked Dutch art, but actually it's great. <laughs> well, um, no, I, I mean, everybody likes Dutch art except for art historians, really. <laughs> I wouldn't say the book is a campaign against art historians, but it well, possibly... Reynolds is definitely a, a villain of the piece. <laughs> Reynolds is, a, yeah, and he isn't an art historian, you're quite right. But yeah, I mean, I, I'm very astonished by this. And I always have always loved Dutch art. You know, it's been around us. It's around us all now. You know, wherever you're listening to this, the, the local museum, whatever else it will have in it, will have a Dutch painting in it. Um, you know, a fishing skip or, a, you know, some sort of um, creature or possibly a man with a pipe, you know, in a pub or something. Um, they, they are absolutely everywhere. And it was the most unprecedented age of painting ever in history. It has never been repeated. In the book, I've said probably the estimate is about 1.6 to 1.8 million paintings in a, you know, a matter of about five no, years. Why was this happening? And, I mean, this is, well, and this is why people condemn this art and the reason I love it. 
and I want everybody else to love it. It's a very proselytizing book. Is because, and this is what I was taught when I was when I was a child. Well, right. So this is the the golden age. It's the Dutch Republic. They've got rid of the Spaniards. They've got rid of the monarchs. They're uh, they're going forward, and there is a new rising middle class. And you know, um, orthopedic surgeons have themselves painted, and um, blacksmiths have themselves painted, and everybody knows the anatomy lesson of Doctor Tulp by Rembrandt. Big group portraits. There, they fill the Rijksmuseum. So they're convivial people, they want to be painted together, and they want everything they do to be painted. And the the usual, uh, Reynolds, you mentioned great sort of theory with Dutch artists, they just want their stuff photographed effectively. So they're acquisitive and they like to buy tulips. Well, we all know about tulip mania. And uh, they grow one. And what's it going to do but die? So let's get it painted so we can remember it. And I think this is completely wrong. (laughs) um, Because as my father used to say when I was a child, painters paint for quite other reasons than merely reproducing an object. They don't do it just for that. There is always something else. And that's my starting point, really, for my sort of peon of praise to this kind of art. Because if you look at the paintings of Fabricius, He's an absolutely quintessential Dutch artist. He's right there in Delft, painting Delft and painting Dutch people. But these paintings are conceptually miles and miles away from anything Reynolds is describing, you know, which is that, you know, he says... um, And and you get this also, there's a, a quote in the book from Henry James who says that, you know... The Dutch milkmaid, you know, looked like the Dutch milkmaid in the painting who looked like the Dutch milkmaid. And there it is. And there's not enough fiction in there for Henry James. And I think this is so, so wrong, because if we even think of clearly all of the art of Rembrandt, but even if you think of a um, a painting that's supposed to be, this is the highest term of praise, uh, even in its own day, Vermeer, uh, the view of Delft, which many people listening to this might have had the lucky chance to see in the Rijksmuseums colossal and absolutely spectacular show that's just closed of Vermeer. Well, people are, you know, that you look at that painting of Delft and there were these little figures standing on a bank, staring with amazement at this radiant view opposite, under rather thunderous clouds, reflected in the water and everything has slowed itself right down. And we're supposed to be looking at some sort of travelogue. I mean, this is not what is going on in this painting at all. And he moves the buildings about, the sense of awe in that painting and the extraordinary coruscating light in it are all absolute fictions. Um, anybody who's seen the painting going up close will see that it's covered in these things that are called pointillés, these tiny, tiny, bright, light-reflecting dots that stand proud of the surface of the painting, so that the whole thing as an object sparkles, never mind Delft itself. All of this is to do with imagination and not with photography. You have a whole kind of list, almost a kind of reading list of Dutch, or viewing list of Dutch <laughs> artists who, so we've got the sort of, I mean, the Little Ice Age, this, is he called Abakami? Uh, yes. Abakam, Abakam, sorry, yes. I can't read my own writing, <laughs> who sort of is Little Ice Age specialist. And, yes, the Ice um, Man, yeah. Disaster technician, Van der Poel, and, and got all sorts of... I mean, were there just sort of a bunch of hack artists underneath this who have given it all a bad name? Because at least as you describe it, there's half a dozen dozen artists who are really at very, very high levels and are not, as you say, just producing, you know, this huge mass market that is emerged for stuff. Yes. No, I mean, I would go further. I would definitely go further, Sam, and say that um, 
even when you were standing in a gallery, say you're in, you know, Reading or you're in Glasgow or you're in, you know, the Isle of Lewis, for example, where there is one. If you were standing in any of these places looking at one of these paintings, there's never, ever not something, I think, existentially strange in there. You know, if you look at the classic, you know, the, the vase stuffed with enormous you know, prodigiously expensive blossoms. There's a snail in the corner making a joke or there's a figure in the background laughing or there's, you know, there's, there is never simply a vision of what was on the table that day. And I, of course, I think there are specialists, as you say, there certainly are. I mean, they were known to be, if you go to the Rice Museum, you can go into a room called um, <laughs> genre specialist. So that would be girl reading a letter with maid, girl reading a letter without maid, you know, um, girl reading a letter with view out of window of trees, small landscape, you know. So they diversify, there's no doubt. And the market is enormous. Um, people were buying these paintings literally in markets outside. Um, John Evelyn, the diarist, is staggered to find paintings for sale alongside, in some cases, the kind of fruit that were perhaps in the paintings themselves. And um, there were wonderful accounts, um, uh, Pepys writes about this, of people moving through canal on barges down canals from one town to another in order to see a famous painting. And my contention in the book is they're all riveting and some are even greater and still rather little known. So Avacamp, you mentioned, he is the Christmas card guy. But until I really looked hard at Avacamp and thought how strange his scenes are, um, I didn't know where I would see more of them, uh, even though they're, they're dotted around and you see them on Christmas cards. And then I discovered that Avacamp's drawings belong to the Queen. So trail off to Windsor Castle and there they are. And they're amazing, strange fishermen standing beside holes in the ice and um, comic scenes of people falling over and so on. And the, the drawings are just superb. And I've written about them in the book because obviously, though they quotes belong to the Queen, they all belong to us. And anyone can in fact go and see them. And one of the artists in the book who I, I really rave about is an artist called Adrienne Court, whose work is still turning up. A lot of this art is buried, um, hasn't come to light yet. And he painted... Tiny, tiny, there's, there's some in the, in the Rijksmuseum, tiny, 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 I mean, smaller than a postcard in some cases, scenes um, of a stone ledge in pitch glaring black darkness with two or three spotlit objects on the ledge. And there's always a crack on the ledge and his writing, his name along the side of the ledge. And sometimes it's, you know, three apricots or it's two peaches. or And there's a really great masterpiece, I think, of a procession of exotic shells and sort of tip-tacking along the, um, like a sort of um, chorus line-up along, along the ledge. And he painted almost entirely on paper. These pieces of paper have kind of got lost. And the most recent discovery of one was in a, was literally in a document archive. Somebody opened a file and there was a painting. Um, <laughs> and you pick them up and in I've seen and held one that was painted on a piece of secondhand paper. So basically expensive litter, really. But um, in those days, still cheaper than canvas. And you can see the handwriting kind of glimmering through on the back. And it's it's an entry into a ledger from a, trader in Gdansk in 1600. I mean, it's the most strange thing. And in my book, I'm also very much um, praising 
our own individual research. Uh, I am not an academic. I don't have a tenured, I mean, who does now? But, you know, I don't have a tenured position. And um, so the research that we are all now able to do, all of us, anyone listening to this who wants to find a court, for example, you know, just shake the, the internet by the lapels, you might get somewhere. And court um, and everything about him has very, very recently been illuminated by two local historians in Zealand, where he lived, who have, I think, very conclusively shown that these tiny, tiny intimate paintings, which only ever show the same ledge from the same angle and are on paper, if you even now um, listening to this, you might be able to reason your thoughts through this and deduce that quite possibly he can't afford canvas. He doesn't come by very much paper. The paintings are painted on sheets from the same ledger. He probably doesn't have much access and he doesn't get out. So what might he be disabled? And I think they are completely correct in their very tender supposition that he can't, he's probably very crippled and he can't get very far away from that ledge and people come and bring the fruit. I think that's a wonderful account of of, of course it's speculation, but it's a speculation that goes to the characters of the paintings themselves, which are ecstatic in their fascination with, say, two walnuts or a peach. What seems odd here is if they've got a society that is a burgeoning, never-before-seen or never-since-seen market for art, why were all these characters so wretchedly poor. I mean, one person you talk about, um, I think, is Van Gorgen, who's a sort of ec- wonderful painter of water. But you say his technique, essentially, is because he had to use terps to kind of, yeah, kind of yes, eke his paint out. Yes, he did. He, he uses terps and he paints also very thinly on the surface. Um, so it's the opposite of Rembrandt. You know, people say famously about Rembrandt that you could pick the portraits up by the nose because they're so heavily painted around the centre of the face and so on. So, yeah, he paints these. And again, it goes to the greatness of the paintings because he's painting essentially moisture circumambient air and and moisture carried within it so it's the classic sort of um dutch life you know everything is a bit wet the sea is here the dikes are here the canals are here and um rising mist above them and so on and and but jan van goyen who is the most prolific of all the painters in this book and i think possibly the most prolific in the whole of Dutch history, certainly leaves 1,200 paintings and many more will have been lost. And he was so popular in his own day that people actually copied them and forged them. And, you know, in wills, people say proudly, I have a copy of a Van Gogh. And you think, blimey, you know, how could he not make any money? Your essential question is exactly right, because it's called the golden age. You know, surely they're going to be making pots of gold when they don't at all. They are all broken. They are all bankrupted, Rembrandt most notably and famously. Um, Vermeer dies with hardly a penny. Why? Well, I think it might be supply side economics. I mean, you know, I think if you think about the the amount <laughs> that's available and um, the, the demand for it, there's too, there's too much of it. You know, people don't pay enough for it. However, going against that, there are occasions where a painter will demand a lot more money. Sometimes it's a few guilders. I mean, there are terrible stories of Avacamp, for example, so, you know, given a, the job of painting the town stable for what is essentially about 10 quid. And the same happens to Fabricius, um, of whose late years before he dies, which we're coming to, I'm sure, in a moment. All I really have of him 
is the exemplary, meticulous Dutch document record keeping uh, are bar bills and bills and more bills and more loans and more, you know, way back. He can't pay this, he can't pay that. And nearly all Dutch artists have a second string to their bow. So they're, you know, they're doing brewing. Jan Steam's a brewery, you know, um, people own pubs, um, people, uh, terrible, you know, uh, stories. In, in one of the painters in my book who I greatly reveal, Emmanuel de Witt, who was a, a painter of light. Um, oh, I mean, a painter of light, well. wonderful, you know. And, and he's reduced at one point to selling gloves, you know, in a stall in Amsterdam. So I think it's that they He makes an awfully sticky end, doesn't he, de Witt? Oh, it's... Tragic, uh, desperate ice age and little ice age end because he can't pay. He's in his 80s and he's been very unfortunately married twice. That second marriage ends up with his um, wife and daughter both in jail, in fact. And he can't pay his final rent and um, goes out on a January, freezing January night to hang himself from the bridge over the, uh, the central canal in, in Amsterdam. And the rope snaps and his body dropped into the water. and during the course of the next few hours, meticulous record keeping once again, this time meteorological, the, the canal froze right over and they didn't discover his body for, I think, six and a half weeks. And I thought that story might be a tall story, but then I checked the records and sure enough, that is when the first thaw comes and somebody sees a body under the ice. Tragic. Well, the other great father figure in here, other than the Fruitwishers, is your actual father. Can you... Tell me a bit about Jimmy and about his his life and his career and and how he brought you to Dutch art. Uh, yeah, he's um, he was from Dunfermline. He was born in 1922 and um, he fought in the war. He was a pilot in the war and so on. And when he came back from the war, very, still very young, he did his training at Edward College and everybody else is going off to, you know, the sunny Mediterranean South, basically. And if you won a, a travelling scholarship, which he did, you know, you, you were going to go and look at Italy or, you know, Paris or something. And he took the money he had and eked it out on the island of Lewis, where he he's supposed to go for two months and then it was a year and then he managed to get a bit of work and he was there for a very long time. And it fed his art for, I think, pretty nearly 20 years afterwards. Um, certainly my childhood, these are the paintings that I most remember, the, the the Hebridean paintings. And when people would ask you what your father did for a living, you know, and I would say he was a painter. And the book begins with my first day at school, this momentous day when I see the Avacamp painting and the teacher's going around the classrooms, Miss Rogan, oh, you know, what's your father do? You know, and they're all kind of, you know, some obviously um, self-explanatory profession. And when I got to paint her, she said, as a house painter? And I just, all I could think was, well, the paintings that I've seen by him aren't of houses, so probably not really. And I, they're more, they're figures. And, but I didn't know the word figures. And I, anyway, I, she passed over to the next person who was um, a Scottish minister. <laughs> and, uh, and the paintings he painted, I got the word semi-figurative. Um, it's a phrase not very much used now, but it was very big in those days. And semi-figurative painting, it sort of attaches to Picasso and um, Braque and early kind of early modernist. But so it's you can see roughly what the content is, but there's something quite else going on in the painting. And he would paint these amazing poachers and fishermen and villagers, um, shepherds and so on. And, and they seem to be sort of of a piece with the landscape. And the painting in the book, which I suppose if any, if I wanted anyone to 
know what was the greatness of his art um, is, alas, a lost painting, um, but there's an image reproduction in the book. And it was called The Bran Seer. And The Bran Seer was a real figure who had the gift known in Lewis as second sight. The book is very much about sight, all kinds of sight. And um, second sight is where you were able to see the future. And so he foretold, he died in the same century as Fabricius around the same time, but he foretells, it's written down, he was probably illiterate, um, he was a labourer in the Black Isle, he was murdered by his mistress for foreseeing, as it were, her husband's infidelities in Paris at the court of Prince Charles, and so and that's that which is the end of him, but he does foretell black horses rushing across the highlands, which are going to be clearly the trains and so on, and and nuclear submarines um, in the Clyde. And and my father was very uh, reverent about this gift that the Lewis people have. They didn't always love having it. He held it in the greatest respect. He believed that if you can't, I think it's a fairly logical position, if you can't disprove it, then how could you? I mean, it's something that I know is sometimes said about UFOs, for example. It's also something is said about religion. But if you can't see it, how could you know? But he kept his own record of what islanders told him the Brownseer had said, and I, I can remember him absolutely astounded when nuclear warheads were appearing in the in the fly, because there was a wonderful description written down of, of the seer seeing this in this in the Clyde. So he believed in that and he painted a picture of this man, which is semi-figurative, in which his eye point of my book is very much eyes, in which his eyes, as it were, as it seems to me, seeing both the future and the past and the present. And it's a, a great painting. I hope people will look at it. At this time he spent in Lewis, I'm interested in him, it's immediately after the war. Was there something about his wartime experience that drove him like a sort of, you know, Fabricius slightly leaving the scene to, to take himself somewhere remote to be alone? Well, I'm very struck by your insight. I don't think I had thought of that, but I think that's exactly right. He, like so many um, servicemen in the war, he'd seen terrible things and he had been a very long way. He was trained in Canada and Texas and then he spent a lot of time in Burma and India. And um, there are lots of drawings from that period. And I, a thing that I'm, I want to say, given your remark, your remarkable observation, Sunlight, um, is that I think he... He never wanted to travel again, not really. And he wanted to cleave to his own country, I think. And the only reason we ever took this trip to the Netherlands, this one place that we ever went to, was because he was given a travelling scholarship to go and study Dutch art. And some of the paintings in this book I'm writing about because he stood in front of them, I suppose. As you describe it, there's a sort of pivot in his own career at which the sort of um, Kalanish period, the the paintings from Lewis and, you know, if you like, under the style of Lewis, even when he wasn't living there, suddenly there was this sort of amazing perpendicular turn where he's interested in micro, micros, microscopy. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. <laughs> and um, which is also something that is going on in parallel in this book um, in the Netherlands because Leeuwenhoek turns up and microscopy begins and telescopes are invented and, and so on. And the Dutch, are, of course, are brilliant at all this. And we had a neighbour in Edinburgh who was a surgeon at the Royal Infirmary in Edinburgh and he had access to the electron microscope for the first time in, the I think, 1970. And my father 
who wanted to see as much as he could, probably now internally, but of the world, and who was very, very interested in, you know, the golden mean. He was he, he's, Essentially, his training, like so many British artists in the 20th century, was very much to do with, you know, Galileo and Leonardo and the Vesuvian man and so classical principles of drawing. And when this new invention turned up, and he was allowed to go to the infirmary and look through it and actually see a seed, uh, uh, you know, or a hair or, or the tiniest atomic particle and so on, he found this absolutely astounding and he became very very interested in chromosomes um what you could see of chromosomes and as everybody listening to this knows but we didn't know at this point nobody had any idea chromosomes are uh, are an alphabet i mean they're form if you look at them they all look as if they're describing something in some other language than our own they're a kind of script and uh he was really i think obsessed eventually with the idea that which i've described in the book in a very obvious phrase from blake which is to see the world in a grain of sand you know that, that everything our dna everything has inscribed in it scribing the word you might say pictured in it um, the totality of existence however small so yes he began to paint he began to paint in the light of that and it was a huge shock <laughs> and I can certainly remember my mother thinking oh my goodness will we ever sell any more paintings <laughs> because they were very purely abstract of course but this is the 70s and by now minimalism has has taken over and abstraction is you know, deep in the century and very established. And so, in fact, they, they were equally successful. Now, I mean, it's, it's very suggestive that you say that the, the chromosomes he was interested in painting are an alphabet because you, as you describe yourself, have a very, you're a very, very visual person. You obviously respond powerfully to art and you're constantly preoccupied with seeing, but you've made your career in words and in translating art into words. I'm wondering how those those things mesh for you? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, um, you know, necessity being the mother of invention, I suppose, because I can't draw. I mean, I was sort of not bad at sculpture at school in the sort of usual sixth form way. Did you know, want but, to? Um, oh, yes, very much. I mean, I still think drawing is a sort of essence of everything. And you know, I still wish I could draw. And if I had been able to draw, maybe I wouldn't ever have written anything. But I mean, his art was very celebratory. My mother's as well. She was an artist. And I suppose I think, I think that if you're on the earth for this short span, this little walk in the sun, you should celebrate it in some way. And the the things that I grew up with were images. And so probably writing which is the I mean you know if I was a musician maybe I'd be making music I don't know but the thing that I was trained to do at school was was writing and um so that was my way of celebrating what I could see I stand behind the long line of great you know I mean there are so many writers about art I I really worship um, almost all of them I would say are philosophers or novelists or poets um very few of them are art historians. I really, for example, I, I often say people, you know, students sometimes ask, you know, what do you read and so on? And I, and I, you know, I look at the books behind me and I mean, the, my, my absolute favourite writing about art is by um, people whose profession is writing, but whose subject is not essentially art. And that is also, I say this with really due humility, I wasn't trained in art history. I have a scepticism about that discipline altogether. Do you think there's a we murdered to dissect 
element to I do. I, I do somewhat. And um, I'm my job is I, I'm an art critic is my job. And, and I can hardly count the number of times I've ever met a curator who liked art. I don't know what they do it for sometimes. Um, it's, it's almost like a sort of civil service discipline. They are administrators only too often. I have a very strong memory of an art historian who is now dead, so I think I can say it was Juliet Wilson-Barrow. She was the great Goyer expert, um, and she was putting on a show of Goyer's black albums at the Hayward Gallery. And I don't know whether it happened by chance, but I was there while she was, you know, white gloves on and, you know, taking them out of crates or something. And um, there were people in the gallery who were absolutely staggered by what they were seeing, and she was meticulously handling them quite right. She was the curator. And one of the drawings, which your listeners may know, which is called Ion Apprendo, I Am Still Learning, which is a tiny drawing of a very old man pegging along on sticks. And, I mean, really many people have cried in front of that drawing. And I began to, you know, feel very keenly about it and said how moving it was to see this and what an incredible imagination and so on. And she frowned slightly and I said, well, you know, some sort of... <laughs> sorority, no, not sorry, what's the word? Some very junior question, I suppose, rudimentary. And I said, you know, something like, you know, so which one moves you? And she said, moves me? If we have emotions in our profession, we keep them to ourselves. And I remember thinking, yeah, that is the whole problem with you lot. You know, you were brilliant at discovering in a provenance of something and what it was painted on and, you know, whether or not the back of the canvas has been lined or whatever, you know. I mean, I'm characterising these people very, um, very unfairly and loosely. And, you know, I shouldn't deal in generalities like this. But I do think that I see that everywhere. You know, they're very well pleased with whatever they've put on. But do they like it? Do they love it? You know, what do these painters paint for? something that reaches far beyond your eyes, you know, which brings me back to the point of my book, which is these Dutch artists are not just painting to reach your eyes. And it's a book that you said, you know, artists paint to celebrate life while it's here. It's a book that heads towards two deaths, isn't it? Yes. The great death in this book and the ending of this book, of course, is the um, referred to in the title. The book is called Thunderclap. And Thunderclap is the actual name for the explosion in, on the 12th of October 1654 in Delft, which killed Fabricius. So he was painting in his house one morning and uh, he had a, a sitter, a sexton from the Oudekerk who was sitting for him and there were two or three other people in the room and this massive, massive explosion occurs. And if, for analogy, if people can remember the explosion in the, in the harbour, the port at Beirut in 2020 where huge, huge warehouse of actually fireworks, quite most of it, but also gunpowder went off, causing the most you know, devastating sort of mushroom cloud explosion, you know, terrible noise. Um, bodies were you writing this here. book by, uh, yet? Uh, yes, I was. Were you I was. Yes, yes, it, it, it I seems to fit was. in so perfectly. It with does. It does. And I, I, in fact, I, the great and remarkable thing is that this is, and again, this is very antithetical, somewhat, I think, to art historians together. But I was so appalled when that everybody was, of course. But I just finished writing about the thunderclap in Delft, only to discover, you know, this terrible news. And there were scientists, and there are engineers at an institute called <laughs> the Blast Institute, which tries to establish what occurred. So they are very, very specialist. And I sent them my account of the thunderclap as far as I could piece it together and the four known surviving drawings by different artists. 
three of which I am certain are entirely fictional, at least one of which was drawn years later, and there are many paintings. But one of them, weirdly, which is the most kind of, you know, detailed and quite dogmatic and rather unsensational, but, it, you know, it says, A, here is the sort of ground zero, B, here's the church tower that's fallen down. And the Blast Institute men, who were tremendously helpful, all said, that is brilliant, that drawing. That's exactly what happens in Beirut. That's exactly what happened in the explosions all over the place. And um, But 10,000 tonnes of black gunpowder were being stored under the ground in Delft. They shouldn't have been inside the city walls. It was to do with the, the war, the 80 years war and so on. They, I don't know why they were still there and nobody really does. And a new kind of civil service clerk, Sotens, poor man, blown to smithereens. I mean, nobody knows what happened to him. He just atomized. Um, but he was sent to check it and he opened the door. And I think all we know is that he opened the door and he might have taken a step downwards, possibly carrying a lantern. Can you believe it? Possibly a key in the rusty... Uh, nobody really quite knows how it happens, but gunpowder is so volatile. So it all went off and many, many people were dead, including Fabricius. And your father's death was more predictable. Yes, it could have been. They, he, My father had a cough. I, I possibly don't even hardly need to say more than that. And he just carried on having a cough and nobody did anything about it. And, and he, he died. He, he, was, he died very quite fast over a period of um, two and a half months. And he had lung cancer and it went to his brain. Like a firework, I suppose. Yeah. And is your sense in the book that that you can still commune with your father, you can still somehow get to know this mysterious character, Frobitius, by looking through their eyes in their art? Definitely. Definitely. And um, I even would say to anybody listening to this that there are... There are conversations you have with people outside your family. There are letters you write. There are articles you might write. There are books you might write. There are pieces of music you compose. There are expressions of yourself that exist that are in some way decoupled from your daily life and you perhaps don't even know who's going to read them or, or you know, how they, will, how they will be seen in years to come if by anyone at all. But you know that sense that you are talking to someone who isn't in the room. And I think sometimes when I'm writing that um, I'm speaking to somebody else who, if I'm very lucky, might see things the way I do or might see them differently because I said that and then they have their view and so it goes on. And so I think to, to look at a painting, either by Fabricius or by my father, um, is definitely to be having that uh, relationship um, that kind of rapport with the, the work of art. You know, I know that he could, I mean, I think this is quite common, you know, I know that, for example, you know, he could say what he wanted to say about Lewis in all these marvellous, marvellous paintings, but I don't remember him ever talking about it. Um, and I know the people from Lewis who have his paintings and never knew him, but they know him and he knows Lewis. So, yeah, I mean, it's a cliche to say this, but... What windows do we have if they are not these um, to see each other, through which to see each other? Yeah. I was going to say, there's one final extraordinary detail that you mentioned going back to Frobisius, a discovery that I recently made about the goldfinch, which I guess now, thanks to Donna Tartt, is probably his most famous painting. Yes, yes, um, yes. 
<laughs> and of course, you know, everybody wants to link it to Donna Torp because it does sound as if, you know, she might have known this, which um, she certainly could not have when she was writing her novel. But um, the, the conservator of this painting, who is a very great man who lives in a very remote um, island in Denmark and is very humble and modest, he cleaned this painting. And while he was cleaning it, he began to, it's painted on a piece of wood. And the wood was in panels and it had been carefully doweled together and it seemed like, you know, Fabricius was being very thrifty and I'm certain that's true. And and he began to wonder whether or not he could discover anything more inside the painting. When you are cleaning canvas, canvas is, you know, a millimetre, two millimetres, a chunk of wood you could see inside. And so he did something that never has been done before and I don't think has since, which is to CT scan the painting so that he could find out what effectively is inside its brain, what is the, you know, what is going on. And while he did this, he he was able to see the depth of the, the paint, which is very thick, and he was also able to see that the wood was not cracked, but the surface of the painting was covered in... Well, they're not holes. I've seen these scans. They're sort of pock marks and they appear very clearly to register uh, the force of an explosion, something moving across the room very fast and very hard. And what I found fascinating about that was that the wood was not cracked and yet the painting receives the, the registers the explosion that clearly is going on that day. And from this, it's possible to deduce that the painting is the paint on the surface is wet. It hasn't dried. It didn't break. If it was dry, it would have broken. The wood would have broken. But somehow the wetness of the pigment itself protected the wood behind it and showed us, uh, Jorgen Vardam, this great conservator, and me. I mean, this is my deduction. And he's he's very, very, um, very wonderfully, he's conceded this point. He, I think we agree about this, that it was in the house and it survived as the painter died. Laura Kelly, thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much. <laughs> 